Oh, beautiful stuff. Go ahead and have a seat if you would, church. Thank you so much, worship team. Appreciate that. Thank you for uh, your beautiful singing, church. Even amid some uh, technical difficulties, you kept singing. I was encouraged uh, by that. The Lord's faithful even uh, in technical difficulties, isn't he? Thankful for that. Uh, well, I hope you have, I know many of you are, are on fall break. You just start fall break uh, today or this weekend, I guess. And so I hope uh, if you are on fall break, you are encouraged, refreshed, you find some refreshment in that. And I hope if you're a parent, uh, you're not panic stricken thinking, uh, how are we going to entertain these kids for the week? Uh, Janine and I were talking about this last night. I don't know. We feel this burden sometimes to, to make sure that our kids entertain. But with my parents, there was never uh, any concern about that at all. They didn't worry about it. Uh, I, I, if I said to them, hey, I'm really bored, they would say, go outside and play. And then if I came home before dark, they would say, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, it's, I, was, I was expected to entertain myself, so uh, hopefully um, our kids will enjoy their time. Uh, we have some people on the road, so we're going to pray for those uh, folks in just a minute. And then next Sunday, just so you know, is our Global Hunger Sunday. There's a, a potluck uh, lunch after church, and so... All we would ask you to do is bring some, uh, some chili or some soup, and that is over in the FLC, which is to your right. And then also it's the Sunday uh, on which the, uh, the little bread, uh, the, the uh, money containers are due that go to uh, at least a little bit, uh, hope doing our part to help with world hunger. So hopefully you'll uh, take part in that. Let's pray and we'll get into the Word together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, so much for your faithfulness. We thank you that... When we are faithless, when we uh, are fickle, when we are uh, irascible and unreliable, Lord, you continue to love us and pour out your mercy on us. You continue to shower us with your grace. Lord, I want to pray that you would stir in churches across the country to, to give generously toward uh, assisting those who are hungry. I want to pray that even for our own church that you would continue to cultivate within us a very generous spirit. And Lord, I know that I'm so grateful that we are such a generous church. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue uh, to help us to see all that you're doing in the world, uh, even over these next couple of weeks. And pray for those who are traveling today, those who are going uh, uh, to the beach or other places to see family or friends. I pray that you provide safety for them and pray that you would bless their, their time. Uh, with their uh, respective friends. And I pray today, Lord, as we open up your word, as we, we take this little break from our Gospel of John study, that you would uh, minister to us, Lord, in a profound way, helping us to see, to recognize, and to be awestruck by your power, your glory, your fame, and your work in the world. Uh, will you do it for Jesus' sake? Amen. All right, so if you've been around, you know we've been in the Gospel of John for about 24 weeks, and uh, uh, we, we've made it through nine chapters, which tells you a little bit about the sort of pace that we're keeping. We're not going too fast, uh, but we're trying to uh, handle each section uh, faithfully and responsibly, and uh, we're taking a break now for two weeks from our study of John, and we're going to do something a little different. It's the first Sunday of our fiscal year. Our fiscal year goes from October 1st to the end of September and I want to talk a little bit about our mission as a church, and I guess more specifically, what I believe, uh, God, how I believe God intends to use us, this church here in North Alabama, to expand His kingdom uh, around the world. 
Um, if you are new with us, what you'll find us doing about 90% of the time is, is working our way through a book of the Bible, uh, usually section by section, trying to keep the text uh, in the context. But every once in a while, for a specific reason, we will we'll take a break from that expositional approach and uh, look at something that is very important, critical to the life of our church. So that's what we're doing. Uh, next week, we have a guest preacher, uh, Dr. Brent Whitefield, who is one of the world's foremost missiologists, which just means that he has studied more and has seen more firsthand God's work in the world than really than anybody that I know. He's done ministry in, in 80 countries, uh, preached, taught, and done ministry in 80 countries. He's lived in several countries, including uh, Australia, Japan, uh, Canada, the UK, and other places. And he's got a PhD from Cambridge. He's a brilliant guy, but he's just a He's, a, he's just an everyday, uh, normal guy, enjoyable to talk to, and what he's seen in the world, I think, is going to encourage us uh, next week. Uh, the, the other reason we're taking this break is because of something that Jesus said in the passage that we looked at last week. Uh, he has his disciples around, there are, there are religious leaders around him. He said something that seemed almost off the cuff. We, we know that it wasn't because everything Jesus said was intentional, uh, but he said this to his disciples. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples about working while he is still there with them. When he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples they will be engulfed in darkness. And we know that much persecution would ensue. In fact, uh, according to history, uh, 11 of the 12 uh, disciples were actually killed for their faith. Some burned, some uh, uh, killed by spear and other ways. So we know that, that darkness would soon engulf them. But there's a bigger meaning to this phrase, night is coming. Uh, just as every day uh, has an end when the sun goes down and darkness falls, what Jesus is saying is, our time is limited. Our time is limited. Soon we will be out of time. We will have no more time to spread the good news of his gospel. And so what we're called to do before night falls, which is actually anchored in and rooted in what he has already done for us, is to, to get the good news out. And so this morning I want to look at three things. What God has done and is doing. That'll be the first thing. What does this mean for us as a church? And what does this mean for you and me in particular? First, what God has done and is doing in the world. Here's our first point this morning, which establishes the foundation for everything that we will do. God's plan has always been about sending ambassadors to invite broken and sin-cursed people to find forgiveness and life in Him. So God's plan has always been about sending ambassadors to invite broken and sin-cursed people to find forgiveness and life in Him. So I want to go back to the very beginning uh, where we see God's sending nature on display. So you go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, God has created everything for Adam and Eve, our first parents, to enjoy. And everything is as beautiful as it could possibly be. Every fragrance is perfect. Every color, every hue, everything is absolutely pristine and exquisite. Uh, the greenest greens the richest hues, the most succulent fruits and vegetables, sun, sunsets unlike anything we could ever dream of. 
insects that do their role, animals that live together in harmony. Everything is perfect, literally. It is disease-free, harmonious living, perfect shalom. And this is where Adam and Eve live. And yet, Adam and Eve rebel against God, doing the one thing that God has commanded them not to do, that is to eat of the forbidden tree. And as a result, sin enters the world. And the pristine and perfect garden is subjected to chaos. So what once was this beautiful garden will actually become a wilderness. And this is going to be important as we look in just a moment. Now, sin doesn't strip the world of all its goodness. There's still an element of goodness that remains, but everything is nevertheless tainted by sin's curse. And not just plants and animals, everything is corrupted. And so Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They're banished from the presence of God. And in, in the, into the world enters fighting and strife and oppression and poverty and hatred and violence, all of these things. And along with that, man is actually born, every person born from Adam and Eve then is born under this curse of sin with a sin disease, separated from the God who made them. But before Adam and Eve are banished, God explains the curse to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And he says to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God speaking to the serpent. In the middle of this devastating curse, right? all, of, all the beauty of the perfection of God's creation, it's lost and in the middle of this, this, this incredible curse, God actually still issues a promise. He's not done with humanity. One day, God would send a man, born of a woman, born under the law, who would crush the head of Satan. One day, God would send, and we, we see God sending nature on display already, a man who would destroy Satan and completely restore all of God's goodness to the world. This is the promise of Genesis 3.15. One British pastor and theologian, Derek Thomas, writes, with the possible exception of John 3.16, no verse in the Bible is more crucial and definitive than Genesis 3.15. So out of chaos and into this world of darkness, God would send a rescuer. He would send a deliverer who would one day stomp the head of Satan. But before that would happen, God would send others who would introduce, who would tell about this coming one. First, there would be Abraham, who was an idol worshiper in this town of Ur, which was in the region of Mesopotamia, what we know as, as modern-day Iraq. The Lord would call Abram some 2,000 years after Adam. Genesis 12 reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So Abram, Abram is already 75 years old. He and Sarah, I have no children. And yet God says that I'm, from you, from your descendants, all the people of the world will be blessed. In other words, I'm going to, through you, I'm going to introduce all the other nations to me. The nations will be introduced to the one true living God among all these idol worshipers, and there were gods back then, every sort of god, so-called god you can imagine existed. Gods of the sun, gods of the sea, gods of the earth, 
gods of fertility, gods of pleasure, uh, gods of dance. There was all kinds of gods, and people worshipped all of these gods. And God says to Abraham, the true living God says, through you, Abram, his name will be changed to Abraham, as you know, all the peoples on the earth will be introduced to me. And by the way, God didn't choose Abraham because he was such a great person. Abraham was actually an idol worshiper. He was a worshiper of all of these pagan gods. In fact, not only was he not a great person to begin with, he would struggle repeatedly to obey God, disobeying God in some of the most heinous ways. But God chooses and uses the most unexpected people. This is actually a theme that runs throughout the Bible. God uses the most unexpected people. He doesn't choose good people and make them better. He selects outcasts, rejects, and rebels, and he makes them his own. And then he actually sends them out to introduce other people to himself. All the prophets were decidedly imperfect people. Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Isaiah, the list goes on. These are imperfect people that God calls to introduce himself to a sin-cursed and broken world. But then, then God would send someone not just to introduce people to himself, but to actually do the work necessary to bring people into a restored relationship with him. The one that God promised when he was issuing the curse to Adam, Eve, and the serpent, it would be someone who would actually succeed in every way that Adam failed. The Old Testament points to that one everywhere we look. The New Testament features that one right away. Remember how in Genesis we had Adam in the garden being tempted by the serpent and giving in to the deception of the devil? Well, Matthew 4 gives us an eerily similar account with Satan doing the tempting yet again. Only this time it's not in a pristine garden. It's actually in a wilderness. And this time it's not Adam, but it's Jesus. And Satan gets Jesus alone, just like he did with Adam. He, he picks off Jesus. He gets him alone in the same way he did with Adam. And Satan tempts Jesus, promising like he did with Adam, the whole world can be yours. You can see things. You can experience things differently. Just trust me and you can have it all. Just like Adam, Jesus is tempted by Satan to satisfy a natural desire to eat. For Adam, of course, it was to eat a forbidden uh, tree. For Jesus, it was to, to eat, even though God had called him to fast. Just like Adam, Jesus is tempted to satisfy a natural desire rather than obeying the word of the Father. For Adam, again, the invitation to eat of that tree, for Jesus to eat when the Father had called him to fast. Only unlike Adam, Jesus resists the wiles of the devil. Jesus resists the plan of the devil. He rebukes the devil and perfectly obeys the Father. See, Jesus, the new Adam, the new Moses, the new Israel, resists the devil and gives us a glimpse into God's great reversal of all the consequences of Adam's sin. And he shows us who the he is in Genesis 3 that would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Now, not only did Jesus obey in that moment in the wilderness, but he obeyed the Father perfectly in every way, lived the perfect life, for us, died a brutal death on a cross, being murdered for the crimes that we committed. Death could not hold him, though. The grave was too weak. He was raised again on the third day so that 
Everyone who trusts in Him could have eternal life, could be part of God's redeeming work. Jesus is the one sent by God to bring salvation to all peoples. In fact, we saw this in John's Gospel. We've seen it just in chapters 8 and 9. Over and over and over, Jesus has said, I'm the one that God sent. I'm the one that God sent. If you believe in me, you believe in the one that God sent. You'll have eternal life. God revealed His sending nature, His incredible love, His his unparalleled mercy by sending His Son to die so that we could have life. That's, That's who God is. He is a loving and a gracious and a merciful God. Our God is a sending God. And it's His work of sending His Son, this demonstration of love for us, that both fuels and empowers our efforts to tell others about Jesus. So after 20 chapters of John and Jesus telling people over and over again that I'm the one that God sent, then we read this in John 20, 21, the words of Jesus, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And in Matthew's gospel, we read Jesus' words, go and make disciples. So what does that mean for us as a church? Here's our second point this morning. The church's task is to equip and mobilize her members to take the good news of God's salvation into every neighborhood and every nation. So we see this incredible story of God, God sending His Son to reconcile, to to bring to Himself a lost and broken and helpless people. And fueled by that reality, all that God has done for us in Christ, now we're called to go and be His own ambassadors to tell others about this salvation. The church is tasked to equip and mobilize her members to take the good news of God's salvation into every neighborhood and every nation. According to the latest reports, there are 7.6 billion people in the world. And growing, of course. And of those 7.6 billion people, some 31% are professing Christians. Now those are people who claim the name of Jesus. Only the Lord knows among those how many have actually put their faith in Him. 31%. So that's around 2.4 billion people. That leaves 5.2 billion people. 5.2 billion people who don't know Jesus. You know what the fastest growing religion in the world is by a landslide? It's Islam. More people are turning to Islam every day than they're turning to Christ. And that means more people are being enslaved to yet another false religion with a false god to this religion of fear and condemnation. More people are turning to false religions. I have a friend, his name is Esper Ajaj. He's an 84-year-old Middle Eastern man who who pastored for some 45 years the Arabic Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Here's a a picture of Pastor Ajaj preaching just a few years ago when he turned 80. Uh, A fiery uh, man. He himself was converted out of uh, Islam and has spent his life, some six decades, telling people, telling Muslims about Jesus. He was beaten, he's been beaten several times. Many times had his life threatened, he's gotten uh, threats on his life. He has done this at great cost. He was at my house about 12 years ago. This is after he just published a book under a pseudonym. He couldn't write under his own name because he did that once and uh, received so many death threats, his family had to go into hiding. He was at my house about 12 years ago, and over dinner, he, he heard that we had a ping-pong table. This guy's like, at this point, I guess he was like 72, 73 years old. He instantly pushed his food away 
and said, uh, let's go play ping pong. I had a, we had a table in, in my basement. So we went down to the basement, and he, to his shock, he lost the first game. He wasn't used to, to losing at ping pong. And so uh, this, this short little guy, this feisty guy, took off his jacket, took off his shirt. He just had a tank top on. I thought he was going to take off his pants, too. I, said, I had to stop him. I said, look, there are women and children around. He was so determined to beat me at ping pong, he was going to do anything. And yet the more that I talked to him, the more that I realized that his greatest determination, his burning desire, the thing that moved him, that got him up in the morning was to see, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those enslaved to the religion of Islam. Islam's growing like crazy. The fastest category of all among those who self-identify is the category of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. This is those who, who say they're not religiously affiliated at all. And of those 5.2 billion people who are not professing Christians, 3.2 billion are what we call unreached. This means that they have no gospel movement. They have no self-sustained church in their, in their people group, in their community. And for many of those people, they've actually never heard the name Jesus before. The name Jesus has never actually crossed their ears. Most of those folks live in what's called the 1040 window, uh, which is a, an area roughly from 10 to 40 degrees North latitude, it runs across North Africa, the Middle East, India, China. This is where more than half the world's population lives. And it's estimated that in that window, some 90% of the people who reside there are unreached, most of which have never heard the name Jesus. There is no gospel representation. There is no church. Now, we can't win all of those people, of course. We can't win 3 billion people. But what we do have a responsibility to do is our part in getting the good news to those who live in darkness. There are a lot of things that we do as a church. I've been here, what, 16 months? I've been so encouraged in so many ways by this church family, by the ministries, by the way that people are reaching out, by the way that people are caring for one another. There are a lot of things that we do as a church that I praise God for, and they're really good things. But there's only one thing that represents the central mission of the church. And that is to go and make disciples of all nations. This is why you see on our website, why you see in our literature, why you see outside of our building, this phrase, making disciples who make disciples. A friend of mine, Larry Osborne, is a pastor in the San Diego area. He's written extensively on the Great Commission. He says this very pointedly. Jesus gave us a mission. It's crystal clear. It's not the least bit ambiguous. We are to make disciples among all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything He commanded. To do that, we have to align and constantly realign ourselves toward this task. So we are called to get the good news to people who are living in darkness. And not just to get the news in their hands, but to lovingly and prayerfully call them to believe it. To plead with people to believe the good news about Jesus, to invite people to receive by faith the forgiveness and healing that God offers. And the way that we do that on our end as a church is by equipping people with gospel understanding, with theological precision, by helping people understand the big story, the meta-narrative, the grand story of redemption, by showing people in every single gathering the beauty of Jesus Christ, in every area of life, the power of God's salvation. So we gather 
to, to edify, be encouraged, to pray for, to love one another, to worship God, to be strengthened. Then we scatter, we go out to evangelize, to reason with, to converse with, to tell other people about Jesus. And it's because of, because we've tasted the goodness of God, we, we've experienced the joy of God's forgiveness, we're then mobilized and moved to tell others as well. So, we dive deep into the beauty of God's story every week. So I'm so thankful for Pastor Chris and his leadership showing us as we get together and we sing together by song the beauty of God's big story of salvation, the power of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So we dig deep into the beauty of God's story every week of which Jesus is the hero. And we train and equip our people to share Christ with others. Now one of the most effective ways that we scatter... In fact, it's been proven the most effective way that we scatter is by sending people to plant churches. I didn't realize this maybe for the first third of my ministry that I thought the Great Commission was about individual people going out and sharing their faith. And certainly that's a part of it. But you know, the Great Commission is actually a call to plant churches. Because what were those people supposed to do who were brought into faith in Jesus in, that early, in the early days what were they supposed to do? Well, the New Testament is all about people being baptized into a community, being part of a community. And so the, the, the Great Commission is a call to invite people to receive Christ, but then to establish churches when they do, so they can have a worshiping community. What Jesus had in mind when He uttered the Great Commission was the planting of churches. So that people could come to faith, be involved in, be, be baptized into a believing community in which they could thrive and grow spiritually and then be sent out again. Some would say, well, that was then. Now we have plenty of churches. We don't need any more churches. And to that I would say, there are plenty of churches. There are plenty of churches in, in Madison, Alabama. There are plenty of churches all over, but there aren't plenty of churches who preach the whole counsel of God. There aren't plenty of churches who are gospel-centered, who seek to exalt Christ week in and week out. There are plenty of churches. A person can easily find a church, but the reality is there's a great dearth of gospel-centered churches. Now, there are some good ones. There are some good ones for sure. There's some good ones in our community. But in many, many churches, dare I say, most churches, the message that rings out in every sermon and every Sunday school class is how you can be a better person, how you can change your life, how to live better, how to live differently, how to change your situation, how to have your best life now. This is the message that rings out. There aren't that many. In fact, there's a great dearth of gospel-centered churches. I was on vacation a couple years ago and visited a couple churches, as I tend to do on vacation with my family, and went to this church, and we were warmly received and welcomed, and it was a growing church by all accounts, and uh, the music worship was engaging, and I was thankful for that. And the pastor who seemed like a, a wonderful guy, appreciated his ministry. But at one point in the sermon, and I don't, I don't, I'm not in the business of criticizing other preachers, but he said something that stood out to me. He said, if you reduce the Bible, all of Christianity, down to one statement that really captures the whole essence of the Christian faith, it's this, love God and love neighbor. And I have to tell you, I was heartbroken by that. I mean, yeah, that's a true statement. We are called to love God and love neighbor. That is, is, in fact, Jesus said the summary of all of the commands. But that's not the story of the Bible. If you want to reduce the story of the Bible down to three words, it's this. 
God saves sinners. That's the story. If you want to expand that a little bit, you can say, yeah, in the words of Paul, in Christ, God is reconciling a lost and broken and sin-cursed world to himself. God is making all things new through the work of his son. If you want to say there's a single verse, I I believe in the greatest commandment. I believe there's a reason that that Jesus said all all the prophets and the, the law hang on this. But that's not the ultimate story of Christianity. If you want to distill it down to one verse, we could say it's this. For God so loved the world, He sent His Son. That's the story. The story is not what God has called us to do, although He calls us to do plenty of things. The story is about a rescuing, a merciful, a holy God who saw fit because of His mercy to redeem a people, to make lost and broken people His very own. But you see, the message of so many is, you should be doing this. And so often they never even hear about what God has done in Christ. The message of the gospel is not do this. The message of the gospel is God has done this for you. God is a loving God. He is a merciful God who offers forgiveness and wholeness through His Son. The message of the Bible is not Jesus came to clean up dirty people or correct the correctable. Jesus came to raise the dead. Jesus came to give life to those who were dead. Jesus came to give sight to those who were born blind, as we saw last week. That's that's actually really good news. Love God and love your neighbor, that's a beautiful command, but that's not good news. That's something we're supposed to do. We need more churches who will proclaim the gospel message. Researcher and missiologist Ed Stetzer says, one of the greatest deterrents to planting new churches is fueled by the greatest myth. The myth that in America, people have already been reached by existing churches. Because God is ascending God and has sent His Son for us and called us to live on mission, we're going to send people out to plant churches. We're talking about this and praying about this at the elder level. Now, we're talking about two to three years down the road. We're not talking about anytime soon. But we believe the Great Commission is a call to plant churches. And so we want to plant churches. Now let me tell you why this is important. Just a few reasons that I'll rattle off here quickly. Here's the first reason. New churches are more effective in reaching the unchurched. During my eight-year tenure as a pastor in Southern California, we planted or had a hand in planting four churches. Two churches that we planted, and then two churches where we had people in our church say, I believe God has called me to, to plant a church. All four of those churches are thriving by God's grace. One's 10 years old, one's 7 years old, 5 years old, 3 years old. And what's so fascinating and so encouraging is they're growing because they're reaching people that existing churches haven't reached. People are coming to saving faith in Christ because of their witness. Uh, Lyle Schaller, who's who's a church consultant, sort of student of the global church, writes, new churches gain 60 to 80% of their new members from the ranks of those not attending any worshiping body. While churches over 15 years old gain 80 to 90% of their new members by transfer growth. Now, why is that? Here's the main reason. New churches must grow or they die. And this dynamic creates urgency in evangelism. When people are sent out as a new church, part of a church plant, they realize, unless God does a miracle here, we're not going to exist three years from now. 
And so there's a sense of urgency. People telling other people about Jesus, where they have dinner, where they work out, where they see their friends, around uh, at the ballpark, whatever it is, they're telling people about Jesus. And through that, God does a miraculous work. Here's another benefit of church plants. New churches must focus on leadership development or they won't have leaders. I grew up in a church after God saved my mother, my sister, and me, 13 years old, whatever, church right in the heart of Dayton, Ohio, right in an urban context. And there was a, the whole ethos there was you have to be really, really old before you're in any sort of leadership position. And there were people around who were sort of guarding, making sure that none of these young people got in leadership positions. Because who knows what they might do to the church, right? So you had to wait a long time before you could leave. Church plants don't have the, the luxury. They don't have that problem, really. You can't say, well, in 10 years, 15 years, you'll be a leader. Church plants need leaders right now, so the existing leaders have to pour into the development of new leaders. And we know that, that the, way, the church goes the way its leaders go. This is why so many churches in mainline denominations have gone off the rails theologically, directionally, philosophically, because one leader softens on a particular sin. One leader becomes soft in his view of God's holiness. One leader sort of puts the gospel aside in, in favor of church growth strategies or whatever it is. So the church goes the way the leaders go. Here's another reason. New churches tend to be much more go and reach than come and see. And you know why that is, right? There's nothing to come and see. They rent a cafeteria in a middle school. I mean, what's, why would so, you, have big, you have big, beautiful churches with these incredible buildings and, and these great programs, and they tell people, hey, come to our church. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Jesus, we see the model of Jesus and the apostles, it was telling people to come to Jesus. And as they put their faith in Jesus, then they're embraced into a believing community. See, the, these church plants, they have nothing to tell people to come and see, and so they must invite people to really investigate who Jesus is. We live in a, a post-Christian world, and we're not that far behind Europe. If you do any studies on this, we live in a post-Christian world. And I realize where we are in our particular context, that doesn't fit. But broadly speaking, in terms of a nation, most people who are unchurched would never think of going to church. You invite somebody to go to church, they're going to say, why? Why would I go to church? And with the secularization of America, we've, it's harder and harder to get people to come to an event. But new churches are intent to actually going where people are, reaching people where they are. Now, here's another reason. New churches are better able to adapt to changing methods. If you're a church, if part of a church that's been around for 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, with churches in our community that have been around for over 100 years, it's very hard to bring about change. And I must say, when I say that, I'm so thankful for this church. This is not a church that I've, I've discovered. This is not a church that just digs in its heels and says, we're not going to change. Praise God for that. But in many churches, if you try to make any sort of change, you've got to go through all kinds of teams and committees and processes and all these things. Well, new churches don't have that problem. They don't have the problem. They can, they can adapt to changing methods while keeping the gospel central. Here's another reason. New churches immediately allocate resources to reaching others. So from the very beginning, from their DNA, they're thinking, how can we, again, spawn other churches? My friend who was sent out of the church that I pastored in Southern California, his name's Ronnie, planted a church in Ashland, Ohio. Who would have thought that in six years that church would be over 200 people and already looking to plant another church? And these are mostly people who've come to faith in Christ. 
Just an incredible work of God. From the very beginning, a new church plant determines we're going to budget a portion of our monies to planting other churches. Here's another reason. New churches are better able to reach new socio-cultural groups in a community. If a person is, if God does a work in a person's heart and wins that person to Christ, that person, when they go to church, they don't want to go to a church where they don't see anybody who looks like they do. They want to go to a church where they see other people who look like them. Other people are in the same situation and so on. So they want to see people who they can, with whom they can identify. If a church doesn't fit the community they live in, they'll have a very hard time actually reaching that community. If they don't look like the community they live in, they have a difficult time. Let me tell you about a miraculous story that God did in 2015. I, God placed this burden on my heart. I lived out in, in Corona, which is outside of Riverside. Riverside, uh, California, Riverside County has some 2.4 million people. It's one of the most, most ethnically, racially diverse community cities in California. And so God really placed a burden on my heart. We need to plant a church, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church in Riverside. I'm praying about it. I'm talking with my elders. My elders were actually, I was so encouraged. I, I bring this to the elders. They start pushing me. They start saying, okay, what are we going to do? You know, give us a plan. What's a, a vision for it? So I'm praying about it. We're talking about it as, as elders. And I get a, 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 an email from a guy by the name of Kimani Gatheray, who's a Kenyan who goes to our church. He said, John, can I meet with you? I said, I loved it. I didn't know what he wanted to talk about. I hadn't even shared this publicly at all. I said, I'd love to meet with you. So we sit down, and he sits, I still remember, he sits down in my office, across from me. He said, I don't know what to do with this, but God has given me a burden to plant a multi-ethnic, multicultural church in Riverside. I couldn't believe it. I never said one word to Kimani about this. I'm just praying about it. So we, over the next 14 months, we worked with Kimani. We prayed together. We wrestled with a location. We helped to, to, to put together a critical path. We said, as a church, we're going to send, this is hard, we're going to send our very best people to go plant this church in Riverside. These were faithful servants, gospel-centered people. Three years ago, we did that. That church is thriving. I sent Kimani a text on Wednesday, a few days ago. I said, Kimani, I want to talk about this, that this God is ascending God at our church on Sunday. Is there any way that you could, you could put together just a two-minute video that I could show to my church family? It'll give them an idea of kind of what God has done. We sent that, that, that group that we sent out, we sent out two Kenyan families, an Ethiopian family, an Indian family, a Latino family, and two Anglo families. So from the very beginning, they're going to be multi-ethnic, multicultural, and God is doing a work, a miraculous work in Riverside. Wyatt, do you have that video that we can show? Hello, John. It was great to receive a, an inquiry from you, and I thought, as busy as I am, this is too important to wait until tomorrow. So I am in the middle of a state survey, it's what I do for a living. I work with healthcare facilities and I work with the state and federal, all the crazy parts of my life. And yet in the course of that, God in his own sense of humor saw it fitting that we would be called to plant Rebuild Fellowship. This is our third year. Uh, we, as you are well aware, initially began this as a work of faith, a purely multi-ethnic uh, church by design. God has honored that design. So I'm excited to hear that even at your new place, at, at your new assignment, you guys are talking about doing a church plant. Church planting is not for fast, for part-timers, neither is it for cowards. And I think I have found out now 
there is no such thing as a part-time pastor. Sometimes you are done with uh, work with the state and federal medications and legal stuff and then you get a phone call and you are in the hospital late into the night with a family struggling through some medical complications. And it's God saying to us, this is how we do life. And I give you strength and courage to do what needs to be done every single time, full time or otherwise. So I can't wait to hear what God will do uh, with the people he has placed around you. Keep preaching the gospel, John. Stay, stay, stay with the text. Stay with grace. God alone is big enough to fill all our needs. God alone is big enough to change our hearts. God alone is big enough to remove evil that resides and hides so easily in our hearts. God bless you. I can't wait to hear what God will do later. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's my friend Kimani who uh, planted that church three years ago and we've seen God do great things. All right, one more thing here as it relates to church plants. New churches infuse life and energy into existing churches. So what we saw as a church in Corona is we saw the level of enthusiasm for evangelism actually magnified as we kept hearing the stories uh, every few months of what God was doing there. So what, is God, what does this mean for you? Well, it means that you are a person on mission. It means to be a disciple of Jesus, is a, to be a disciple maker. So here's our final point. Whether it means going across the street or across the world, you've been called to introduce people to Jesus Christ. Again, if you know Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are a disciple maker. And God has called you to make disciples, to introduce people to this living God who offers salvation freely to all. What does it mean specifically? Well, maybe it means for you to prayerfully identify one person. Who are you going to tell about Jesus? Who in your circle are you going to have the hard conversation? Maybe it's going to be an awkward conversation. You actually are going to tell them about Jesus. And the work that he's done in your heart. For some of you, maybe God is going to begin to plant a seed and stir in your heart. And it may mean two years down the road, if after we as elders seek the Lord, maybe God calls us to plant a church in Athens. You know, one of the fastest growing uh, cities in Alabama. Maybe God calls us to church, plant a church in Athens. And maybe God is going to soften, cultivate in your heart a desire to be part of that launch team. Maybe we seek the Lord and He encourages us to plant a church in Denver, Colorado, one of the most post-Christian cities in the nation. Yeah, there are a lot of churches there. There are a lot of people who are over the Christian faith, so to speak. Maybe God uh, moves in us that way. Maybe He calls you to get a job transfer. Maybe God calls you to get a different job. You say, are you crazy? I can't do that. Look at the pattern of God sending people throughout the Scripture, the way God provides Maybe, maybe we seek the Lord and God calls us to plant a church in the most unchurched city in America, Portland, Oregon, where it rains 350 days a year. I don't know if it's that much, but it seems like it. But you, you say, yeah, maybe God's calling us to plant a church. You say, I, don't, I need to have the sun. Maybe God's going to stir in your heart. I don't know. We don't know what God's going to do. We're going to be prayerfully seeking him as a group of elders, but we do know that the, the Great Commission is a call to plant churches. And I've seen it firsthand. I've seen God do miraculous things. Kimani is just one example. And we're going to trust that he's going to do something else. Maybe for some of you, maybe for someone here, God is calling you to a place in the 1040 window. Like he's called several, several of our young adults from our families here. To be the light in a very, very dark part of the world. 
to be an ambassador for the living Savior, to tell others about Jesus. Who knows? But here's what we can rest in. Our God is ascending God. He has sent His Son so that we could experience His salvation. He's given us everything in Christ. Is there anything that we could give Him in return that would be too much? Is there anything that He could ask of us that would be too much? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this church family. Thank you for your love and your kindness. Thank you that you are building your church, you are advancing your kingdom, and you promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Father, will you give us the courage to trust you? Will you give us the courage to actually tell someone else about Jesus? Will you give us the courage to pray that you might, to open our hearts to you, that you might send us somewhere? Will you give us the courage, Lord, to, to consider planning a church where there is a, there's a lack of gospel witness? Most of all, Lord, will you give us the grace to trust in you in whatever situation we're in, in whatever phase of life. We know, Lord, that you are the good shepherd. And we know that when you say goodness and mercy will follow after us, what you really mean is it will pursue us. It will overtake us because you are a merciful and kind God. Help us to believe in Christ's name. Amen.